The following audio is from Lifehouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or lifehousechurch.org. Life is noisy. Now, especially for moms. Discover this in my own home. Uh, when I get home, Lord will say sometimes, man, the noise is just overwhelming. I just need some peace and quiet. I need to get in the shower. I need to go hide somewhere. I just need just a moment of quiet because life is noisy. And, and what happens is in the midst of all of the noise, it's hard to decipher what is meaningful and what needs to be discarded. In the midst of the noise, it's hard to discern what I should listen to and what I should ignore. And add on to the noise, fake news. Now, this has just been recently called that, but fake news has been around forever. And the idea is this. There's people who are telling you a lie that's mixed in with truth, and it's hard to know the difference between the lies and the truth, between the sales pitch and the authentic And so what do you and I do in a world filled with noise and fake news and and nonsense? Just recently, uh, Facebook did this whole campaign about trying to train their nearly, nearly billion members on how to detect or discern fake news. And so they, they did video training, they did some print material, just put it out in newspapers and Made it, made it available on the internet. Here's what they said, because they were concerned that people were being tricked and deceived by fake news stories. And so they said, here's basically the rules of how to detect fake news. You, the number one rule is be skeptical. I said, bam, I got that. I'm super skeptical. I don't trust or believe anything. In fact, uh, I make this difficult for Laura. I, I would admit, you know, as we celebrate moms, I'm just like, poor Laura, she's got to put up with me beyond having to manage and take care of our home and the kids uh, because I'm skeptical of everything. So like Laura and I are newly married and she's saying like, the darker lettuce is better for you than the lighter lettuce. And I'm like, where did you get that? Like, where's the research? Where? Like, what's your source, right? And then, like, red grapes are better for you than green grapes. And I'm like, do women come hardwired with this kind of built-in knowledge? It's a sixth sense. I mean, how how do you know? Where's the report? Did you get that from your mother? Like, because I'm skeptical. I'm suspicious of anything. And poor Laura, she's got to constantly put up with me. And what I've learned over time is if you're going to trust anybody, trust your wife, trust your mom, because they don't, they don't give you fake news. Uh, even if it sounds like an old wives' tale, you just trust them. I've learned that's a good rule of marriage. Anyway, I'll keep going here. So they said, number one, be skeptical. Number two, fact check. But then there's a problem. Now there's all these, these reports that are coming out that you got to fact check the fact checker. I don't know who to believe anymore. So you got to fact check the facts. You got to cross reference the research and the studies. Might find another source to confirm the source. Then they said, check your check the sources, check the URL of the story. Maybe it's just a bogus story. Check the intentions of the story. Was it meant just to be a joke? Look at the pictures. Is it is it just a uh, you know like a quick you know borrowed picture or is it a legitimate picture from the story? And you know I hear all this and I'm like what? Every, like, you know how fast we scan through Facebook and I'm supposed to go and do all of these steps to confirm or deny whether or not a story is fake or not? And here is, here is how we approach life. We're skeptical. We want to fact check. We want to examine the sources, see if there are other supporting research and there are other authors saying the same thing. And as a result, you and I go through life skeptical, suspicious, and we should 
When the king of a nation in Africa emails you and says that if for a small deposit fee, they will give you $500 million, you should be a little skeptical. You should start from the perspective of being a skeptic. Be suspicious. I don't know if this is true. I don't know if of all the 7 billion people on earth, they chose me to inherit $500 million. Maybe we shouldn't believe every story, but, but here's the thing, right? Don't we become a little bit paralyzed when it comes to decisions? Don't you start to second guess every decision you make? Don't you spend a lot more time wondering about the direction that you're going and say, is this the right direction? Is this a good direction? And, and you become a little paralyzed because you're not quite sure who you can trust or if you can trust anybody. So then you only trust those closest to you and even then you're suspicious about whether you should trust them or not. Where do they get their information? What's their source? What are their facts? And so as a result, we go through life paralyzed, a little bit restricted in the directions we're going, feeling stuck. Now, bring in faith and religion and God and the Bible, and that issue becomes exacerbated. Now, who do I trust? Now, who do I talk to? Now, what do I believe? How do you fact check religion? How do you check the sources on faith and God and the Bible? So I thought, let's just turn to the Bible. And what's interesting is this. The very first crisis that the Bible gives us in the historical account of the creation of the world and the creation of mankind, the very first problem is man doubting the authenticity, credibility, the reliability of God's word. Is God trustworthy? Is God's word reliable and relevant to our lives? Let me just open it up to you. And because and I, I thought, wow, how, how remarkable that, this, that right now we're in a crisis of what to believe, how to make good decisions and feel stuck being paralyzed because of all the misinformation coming at us. And that is the first issue that they deal with in the Bible. So we're going to open up Genesis chapter 3. Genesis is the book of beginnings. And Genesis 1 is the introduction. It says, in the beginning, God. And I talked about that in part 1. Do you have enough faith to be an atheist? And then in part, and then part two of this sermon series, we looked at in the beginning, God created. And we, talk, we talked about and discussed the idea of, is it possible that God could have created everything? Or do you believe that nothing created everything? And the very next issue that comes up after God creates is this crisis. Genesis chapter three opens this way. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And so immediately you, you're, you discover the, the antagonist in the story. This is the enemy, the devil incarnated in a serpent. I mean, he entered into a serpent. And, uh, and, he, and he said to the woman, did God really say? And so immediately this enemy of our souls, the enemy of Adam and Eve, begins with a question and invites them to question the reliability and the relevance of God's word. And then, he, and then he misquotes, it's the first instance of fake news. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So he misquotes what God said. He knew he was misquoting it because he was trying to mislead her, to abuse her, and invite her into a temptation that would destroy her life. It's the first moment where the enemy of our souls solicited a response from Adam and Eve, 
using fake news, distorted God's word for the express purpose of manipulating them. What did God really say? Well, let's go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, which is exactly the opposite of the way the enemy quotes it. He says, did God really say that you cannot eat from any tree? And, and what God actually said was, you can, you're free to eat from any tree. See, what he does is he makes God's word sound absurd. It, it makes God's commands sound overly restrictive. Now, if you, th- if you play that out in your mind, isn't that exactly what the enemy in your soul is doing? Makes God's word sound absurd and overly restrictive. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat it, you will surely die. See, God's command, God's word, was actually for their blessing and their protection. They already had the knowledge of good. They were already aware of God. They had relationship with God. They were aware of all that was good. They were living in paradise. So eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would only give them the knowledge of evil the awareness of what is wrong. It would, it would remove their innocence and expose them to a world of evil and wrongdoing, and it would bring death and destruction. And so God's command was for their protection and for what was best in their life. And the challenge we have is that we live in a world where we're inundated with noise and fake news, and as a result, we don't know who to trust. But here is what you and I intuitively know. We're going to trust someone. We're going to believe something. And since we're skeptical and suspicious, it's easier to believe that everything is a lie, everything is wrong. And so we believe all of the negative coming our direction. We believe all of the naysayers. We believe everyone that says everything is wrong. We trust them. Just like Adam and Eve trusted the enemy more than trusting God's word. And so I want to challenge you in the midst of all the noise, in the midst of all the fake news, in the midst of all the nonsense of life, if you're feeling paralyzed, if you're stuck trying to make a difficult decision, if you're at a place in life and you're not quite sure which direction to go and you're going to trust something, can I invite you? Trust God's word. That's right, let's start there. Let's begin if, we're gonna, if you're going to buy faith, just believe something. You're just going to trust somebody. Maybe they have initials in front or behind their name. Maybe they have the pedigree of a certain education. Maybe, maybe you have a relationship with them, and that's why you trust them. Can I encourage you? Let's pause and first begin by trusting God's word. Wouldn't it be amazing if you and I had built into us a guidance system that we could trust? I mean, imagine you could trust your every instinct. Every time you had an instinct, it was right. Now, I, I get it, right? We should trust our wives' instincts, our mom's instincts. Like they, they are right. They have that weird sixth sense thing that we're not quite sure why they're right. They're just right. And how many of us have made really bad decisions because we ignored or didn't trust our wives or our mom's sixth sense? But imagine you, imagine you could trust your every instinct. Every desire you had was right. Every thought you had was what was best for you. Imagine the people immediately around you, you could trust them. Every time they told you something, it was absolutely factual. It was certain. And if they encouraged you in a decision to be made, it was always going to lead to your best. Imagine. How great would that be? Unfortunately, you and, all, you and I know that is absurd. It is impossible. It's ridiculous. We know we can't trust ourselves. We know we can't trust our every instinct. 
Why? Because at the very beginning, we go back to this opening story of how man interacted with God. We discover this. It's as if, so we're going to use the metaphor of like malware. There was a hack into the genetic DNA of our being. There was a hack into our minds called sin. Sin is a spiritual virus, a spiritual corruption that is inserted into every one of us so that we're born with this malware at work in us. It's a malware that has infected our decision-making. It has infected our attitudes, our instincts, so that our desires and our instincts are corrupted and always pointing us away from God toward making our to believe we're gods, pushing us with desires to ignore God's desires, believing that what we want is best for us. It's corrupted, and the result of this corruption is that it leads to destruction. It wrecks our mind, our emotions, our well-being. It wrecks us spiritually, because when we are corrupted by sin, we are separated from God, cut off from relationship with the perfect, loving, all-knowing, all-wise God. And when you're separated from the source of knowledge and wisdom, you and I are left in our own ignorance, abandoned to our own desires and decision-making, corrupted by sin. And that's not the worst part. Yes, that we're separated from God. It's that sin leads to death, but not just death, forever judgment. When you go into eternity separated from God, you spend forever in eternal judgment. That's the scary part. And so how does the enemy of our soul, this devil who incarnated himself in a snake, trick people into obeying their sin desires? Well, here it is. We're going to go back and we're going to look through the process of what this Satan does to lure Adam and Eve into obeying his word rather than obeying God's word. He said to the woman, did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. And so the first thing he does is he inserts doubt, inviting people to question the reliability, is God's word trustworthy, and the relevance, is it useful in my life today? You must not eat from the tree, any tree in the garden. He makes, uses doubt to make it sound like God's commands and God's word are absurd and overly restrictive. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, and then she goes on to explain what God said. She actually gets in an argument with Satan. Well, God said that we can eat from any tree except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because when we eat from it, we will certainly die. And so Satan's response to her is this, you will not surely die. He immediately invites her into this reality of immortality. He says, you're not going to die. You can do whatever you want without consequence. There's no punishment. There's no consequence to pursuing your own desires. You can, you can be self-determined. You can choose your own way. You can choose to go down a path of evil, and it won't wreck your life. And so there's no death, there's no consequence. And then he continues, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So you can do whatever you want without consequence and then you will become divine. You will, you will become aware of, you will become enlightened 
and then you will become like God. And there's this invitation to make ourselves out to be God. And that's exactly what sin does. Sin elevates us to a view that we believe we are most valuable. We are worthy of self-love and the love of others, that we could take the worship that's rightly deserving of God and put it on ourselves. We could pursue our purposes rather than God's purposes. We could pursue our desires rather than God's desires. We obey our word rather than God's word. And the result is that Adam and Eve, they eat this fruit, and immediately, the moment they eat it, what they gain is the awareness and the knowledge of evil. They discover that they are full of shame and guilt in an instant. They were in a garden where they were innocent, they were naked, they were pure, but the moment they eat it, they become instantly aware that everything went wrong in their life. And so we're gonna jump down to verse eight. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. So God did what God always does. He came to have relationship with Adam and Eve. He came physically into the garden. And because they had saw the fruit, they took the fruit and they ate the fruit. Now when God showed up, they went and hid. And we follow the same pattern, don't we? When we obey the desires of sin, we see what we want, we take what we want, and then we have to go into hiding as a result of it. And we usually try to cover up our failures and mistakes. And we even hide from God, thinking that if we withdraw from God, God will not notice our wrong way of living. But God does what God always does, and he comes to them, and he calls out to them. He pursues them, but they withdraw, and they say, God, we hid because we were ashamed and afraid. And that's the consequence. That's the result of sin. We go into hiding, full of shame, fear, and guilt. And the end result is not just death, but eternal judgment. But God was unwilling to leave mankind on a crash course trajectory with eternal judgment. And so he intervened in Adam and Eve's story. He intervened in our story. How? And so here's where, I, here's where the story takes a big shift. And I, I really want, I hope you can follow with me and you, you kind of uh, watch kind of the bigger narrative of what's going on in history. So the, the challenge I want to give you is this. How do we trust God's word? Well, first, we trust Jesus as the living word. See, God's word is alive. God's word speaks life into existence. So let's go back. We're in Genesis chapter 3, but let me go back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in verse 3, it goes like this. And God said, let there be light. Right? There was nothing. God spoke into the nothingness, and he said, let there be light. And it simply says, and there was light. Here's, here's what's, why that's remarkable. Because throughout the rest of Genesis chapter 1, God is just going to speak. And his words are life-giving. His words speak into the nothingness everything. God can speak into darkness and light instantly comes into being. God can speak into the inanimate and it becomes animated. God can speak into death, life. He can speak into pain, healing. He can speak into despair, hope. And Jesus, when he comes to earth, he embodies the spoken living word of God. The same word that created everything is Jesus. 
Jesus enters into the world as this life-giving word of God. In fact, there's uh, four historical written accounts from an eyewitness perspective of the life and teachings, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Written by his friends and followers, four guys named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to jump to John. John records it, uh, the story of the life and teachings of Jesus. And he opens with this description it's, a, it's kind of a reference back to Genesis chapter 1, where he, he writes this way. In the beginning was the Word. He's referring to Jesus as the living, life-giving Word of God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. It, it reminds you of Genesis chapter 3, doesn't it? God shows up. He calls to Adam and Eve, but they withdrew from him because sin had corrupted them and separated them from God. And so John is saying, Jesus shows up as the living word of God, and he's calling to his own, but his own don't recognize him. In fact, his own withdraw from him. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus shows up as the living, life-giving word of God. Then Then he continues, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. We we don't trust religion. We're not trusting in faith, meaning we don't just put our faith in faith. We trust in the person of Jesus Christ as the living and life-giving word of God. This is an incredible switch in your thinking. So you're not just believing, you're not putting your faith in the Bible. No, we receive faith from the Bible. We're putting our faith in the person, the life-giving word of God as revealed through Jesus Christ. So when you believe, what are you believing? You're believing in Jesus. I believe that the real historical person of Jesus Christ, God came to earth, entered in our world, He was the living word of God. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He did signs, wonders, and miracles. He proclaimed the good news of God's love to all mankind. Then he died on a cross. His death, a death for you and I. Because in his death, what he did was he took the collective eternal death sentence that every one of us face. He took the judgment and the consequence for our sin, and he put it on himself. So that when he died, he died once for all. The judgment you and I deserve was heaped on Jesus. Our death became his death. So that when he died, he died the eternal judgment we deserved once for all. So that when you believe in Jesus... You're forgiven of your sins. Where Adam and Eve, when, they, when God came calling to them, they withdrew and they hid and they said, God, we were afraid and ashamed. Now when we believe in Jesus by faith, now we can approach God because we don't have to be afraid. He has forgiven us, shame and guilt removed, and we receive life where previously sin was leading to death and forever judgment. Because Jesus not only died on a cross, but he rose again supernaturally, physically, and miraculously. And in his resurrection, he conquers the grip that sin has on our lives. So that when you believe in Jesus by faith, it's as though God's spirit, when he enters into our spirit, he is at work undoing the work of sin. He is 
He is hacking the hacker. In essence, undoing the malware that has corrupted our thinking, corrupted our emotions, corrupted our decisions. God, his spirit, is at work overcoming the work of sin in our life, transforming us. God's spirit gives us life, true life and eternal life. So that now, not only does he free us from the grip of sin, no longer do we fear death because we know that now life doesn't end in death. Death ends in new life and forever life. And we don't have to fear eternal judgment because through faith in Jesus and in the wonder of his resurrection, we know that we have the promise of forever life with God in paradise. All right, so right there, we could just stop and be like, wow. That's what we get, right? And this isn't just like some made up thing. If you applied what Facebook taught about how we should discern fake news, right? If you were started with, from skepticism, if you fact checked, if you look for verifiable other reports, if you look for multiple eyewitness accounts, right? If you examine the details and the research, if you went to the very place, places where Jesus walked, would you be able to confirm that in fact he really lived, he really died, he really rose again? And the conclusion, the confirmation is absolutely. Yeah, you can go to the places where Jesus actually walked. You can go to the places where they believe he was crucified, where he rose again. There was over 500 eyewitness accounts. There were four authors who each wrote their eyewitness account of the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, God didn't just give you one eyewitness account, four different accounts. All of that to bring you to a place where you could begin to trust Jesus as the living word of God. If you need direction, if you need to sift through all the confusion so you have clarity in life, it's believing in Jesus Christ by faith and as a result receiving God's spirit in your spirit that becomes the guidance system to lead you through life, to sift through the noise and give you clarity in decision making and direction. Now as a result, here's what happens. When we believe in Jesus by faith and God's spirit enters into our spirit, then... And really only then do we begin to trust God's written word. The first step is believing in Jesus as the living word. And when we believe in Jesus, God's spirit enters into us. And the Bible, which otherwise just feels like a dry religious book, becomes alive to us. Because God's spirit illuminates the truth of the word of God. Here's, here's, how, I, here's how you read it different. Instead of seeing it as some religious text where you see rules, lists of do's and don'ts, you start to read the Bible and discover that every verse in the Bible points you back to Jesus. And you discover about, more about who Jesus is and the way God loves us, the way God is for us, the way God forgives us, the way God transforms us. And so for me, as I read the Bible, as I trust God's written word, his word is changing me and his word provides clarity of understanding and direction through my life. Here is the trick the enemy will use. Just like at the beginning, the enemy of our souls try to distort God's word so that they would not, they would believe that God's word was unreliable and irrelevant. There is, there is the strategic plan of the enemy in our lives to distort Jesus as the living word, to make you believe that he's just a figment of your imagination or a figment of somebody else's imagination, or to recreate, to rewrite history 
to reframe history so that you believe a lie about who Jesus was. So I say go study. Go do your full research. Go back to the Word of God. Go back to the authors of that time who wrote about who Jesus was, what he did, that he did live a sinless life, that he did signs, wonders, and miracles. And what you'll discover if you do your research is that there was a real Jesus who lived, who died, who rose again, whose spirit now can live in our spirit. And he is trustworthy and reliable. And and so you can overcome the distortion of the world around you that's trying to pervert Jesus as the living word. But then it doesn't stop there. There's clearly a plan, I think, executed by a strategic evil enemy of your soul that wants to distort your understanding and your view of God's word. The written word of God. To misquote it, to abuse it, so that you believe that this is absurd, so that you believe it's obsolete, so that you'll believe that God's word is overly restrictive and unreasonable. But let me offer you another option. Imagine, imagine there were discoveries over a span of hundreds of years of over 5,000 manuscripts in their in their ancient original languages, the over 5,000 manuscripts that when you put them together, they all verify each other, meaning they're all exactly the same. There's not one that contradicts another one. There's not one that is quoted in a different way, but when you put them all together, they tell one story. They make up one set of two volumes of 66 books written over a span of 1,500 years by over 40 different authors. These 40 different authors come from all different walks of life. Some are kings, others are paupers, some are great warriors, some are priests, some are spiritual leaders, some are religious, or or some are legal rulers, some are political leaders. But when when you look at the span of all of their writings, they tell one story. And they all confirm and support each other. And this is the story they tell, that there is a God who throughout history has revealed himself. He is the God who created all things, created mankind, loves mankind, and set out on a mission to rescue mankind from their own wrongdoing and sin. And that one day God would enter into the world as a man to die, to give life to those who believe in him. Then the New Testament of the Bible tells the story that Jesus Christ, God in human form, entered into the world, died on a cross, rose again, triumphant over death, hell, and sin. This two, one, you know, one set, two volumes, 66 books written over a span of 1,500 years by 40 different authors has specific details of times and dates and people and places. Each can be verified through archaeology and research. In fact, archaeology research have not disproved even one simple detail as written and included in the Bible. Now, if that were the case, this would be trustworthy. If that were the case, The Bible would be an all-time bestseller, and it is. It was the first book ever printed on the Gutenberg Press. It is the number one best-selling book and has been every year since books were printed. There's not even a book that comes close. It has been translated into 2,454 different languages. People have died with the mission of translating this book into other languages. People have given their life work to putting this Bible into others' languages so that many people could hear the message of God's love. And you know what you and I would do and need to do is to read it ourselves. 
Don't take my word for it. You can study it yourself. Discover that you can trust God's written word by studying it, by reading it, by memorizing it, by listening to it. Listen to preaching. Yes, but let me, let me I want to pause on that one. My goal every week is I hope that I can deliver a five-star meal. That's really my desire. I hope that this is, some of you might not, you might rate it a little less, but I hope it's like a five-star meal. But something I've discovered, whether you go to a five-star restaurant or you go to a buffet, if that's the only meal you eat every week, you're going to be hungry and unhealthy. And here's what eventually begins to happen if you only eat one meal a day or one meal a week. You can't discern the difference between five-star and fast food. In fact, you start to settle for the cheap, quick fixes because you're so hungry that you'll take anything in. So I want to challenge you. You need to spend time on your own reading the Word of God. You need to spend time on your own studying the Word of God. If, you, if when you listen to preaching, you feel like, man, I'm not getting a lot out of that, or I'm not getting enough out of that, or I'm not getting fed, it might be because you're not eating enough. Maybe you're only settling for one meal a week. And, and let me be honest with you. I don't care how good this is. It's not going to keep you going throughout the whole week. You got to do the work on your own. You got to open this up. You got to study it. You got to examine it. You got to research. You got to pray it through. You got to memorize. That's your responsibility. That's how I approach the Bible. I spend time hearing and reading and studying and praying through the Bible and memorizing it every day. I want to challenge you to do the same. I don't do that because I'm a pastor. I do that because I love Jesus, and I want to understand who Jesus is and what he says about me. This is a book that tells about where you came from, who you are, and where you're going. Now, don't stop there, though, because too often that's exactly where we stop. The final thing is that we need to apply God's Word. It is meant to be read and heard and studied and memorized. But if that's all you do, you kind of miss the point, because God's Word is meant to be applied. Adam and Eve, they listened to God's word, and then they listened to the word of the enemy, and they applied the words of the enemy to their life, and it wrecked their life. You and I will trust and apply someone's words in our life. Can I challenge you to apply the word of God to your life? The written word of God and the living word of God. Apply it to your life, meaning, here's the deal, right? You don't just need more knowledge, you and I need more obedience. Our problem is not information. Our problem is transformation. The word of God was not written so you could listen and hear it. It was written so that you can do it, so you can act it out and live it every day of your life. It is your responsibility and my responsibility to put the word of God into action. So if you have a decision you're having to make, go back to the word of God and let it guide you in your decision making. If you're struggling with which direction to go in life, let the word of God guide you in the direction of life because the word of God was meant to be lived out every moment of every day. You're gonna trust someone. You're gonna trust something. You're gonna use some information to make the decisions and go in the directions you're gonna go. Can I challenge you first to trust Jesus as the living word? And then to trust God's written word. So what, where, what commitment do you need to make right now? Some of you, you've been going through life distracted, allowing God's word to sound distorted in your thinking, going in all kinds of directions that have hurt you and ruined you. But today you're at a place where you're finally ready to say, you know what? I am going to trust God's word. 
So would you take a moment right now? We believe God's presence is here, that God's spirit actually wants to speak to your spirit. If you just pause and listen and even begin to pray. So I'm going to encourage you, would you take a moment right now? Would you just quiet yourself? Maybe even close your eyes and would you begin to pray? And I want to speak to a specific group of you. Maybe you've come in as a skeptic. Maybe you've been suspicious. Maybe you've been suspicious of God, of Jesus, of faith, of God's word. You're listening to something. You're trusting someone. Can I offer you a challenge to trust Jesus as the living word of God, to trust him and to rely on him. And I, I, I believe because it's what the word of God says that when you believe in Jesus by faith, he will forgive you of your sins. His spirit will enter into your spirit and give you forever life. And if that's where you're at right now, I wanna invite you. You can be raised to new life through faith in Jesus. And I'd invite you to raise your hand and say, yes, Patrick, that's me. That's where I'm at right now. If you're online with us, would you let one of our team members know by simply indicating online that you're making that decision. But if you're with us right now, would you just raise your hand and say, yeah, Patrick, I, I wanna make that decision right now. I wanna make that commitment to trusting Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I want him to forgive me of sin. I want him to give me new life. I'm making that commitment right now. Would you just raise your hand and say, yeah, that's me. And for those of you that are raising your hand, I want to pray with you. I want to pray over you. Let's pray right now. Jesus, thank you. You gave us the gift of coming to us. As the living word of God, you entered into our world. You gave your life for us so that we could be forgiven of sin and given new life. We ask that you would come and be present here in your spirit. God, that you would reveal yourself in a powerful way to each one of us. God, that you would elevate the faith level in this place so that, God, we would not only trust Jesus as the living word, but we begin to, begin to trust your written word for guidance and clarity in our life and our thinking. Forgive us of sin and give us new life. Guide us by your Holy Spirit and illuminate your word to us by your spirit. We surrender our lives to you. and We thank you that you have raised us to new life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church, located in Hagerstown, Maryland. We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org. Thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church, located in Hagerstown, Maryland.